after breakfast What's before lunch? It's Austin, Texas It's Weird Brunch Everybody contact Lisa as the world's foremost expert on everybody who's died at Disneyland, how, when, and why. Yep. Thank you. You should should seriously put, like, write a PDF book and put it out there on the internet and just make yourself that, like, resource for the world. Make it, like, the the huge Wikipedia for all the deaths that happened on Mount Everest, but do it, like, all of the Disneyland deaths. Uh, and you're like, you can still see green boots on the side of Spaceship Earth where <laughs> Disney employees <laughs> left him there and he was never recovered. As a what warning if, to others. What if you could, though? Y'all, uh, if I did that, though, they would be like, ma'am, you're not allowed in here. <laughs> I'd be so sad. And you know oh. they've got that like, facial recognition shit going on there to be like, alert, alert. My friend worked with Disney on a super secret project years ago, and she was not allowed to tell us about it. And she was part of, I think it is a cruent, but she wasn't allowed to tell us anything about it. And then when it came out, it was those, it's those wristbands that give you that like personalized experience or whatever. You both look disgusted with me right now. I was just like, oh, it's going to be something cool. And you're like, yeah, it's these wristbands. I mean, it is pretty cool. Okay. Like you put in, Okay. Okay. <laughs> you know, they're like the Livestrong bands, but they say Disney on them. Yeah, and they've got like a little chip in them. Oh, God. I was joking, but that's... Yeah, well. <laughs> when you go to Legoland, if you stay at the Legoland hotels, they give you a little wristband. And if you're wearing the wristband, then you're allowed to play with the Legos. <laughs> <laughs> and if you don't... Then you have to just watch. Karina, we used to see Jada Legoland one day. Yeah. Oh my God, Legoland's the best. It's so much fun. Charlotte and I had such a blast. I'd go to Lego. I mean, I love Disney World or Disneyland, whichever the one is in Florida. I've never been to the California one, but. Legoland is like Disney World with just exactly the same high quality ride, except it's like not overrun with people and it costs like half as much. It really is. A deal. That sounds good. When you say same quality of ride, I mean yeah. like. But is it like when you're waiting in line? Is it the same? That's the one thing that always set Disney apart for me. Mm-hmm. Waiting in line? There what are no lines. That. <laughs> yeah. Not if you're wearing the. I stayed at the Legoland Hotel wristband. <laughs> you're not waiting in line. You're playing with Legos. I so stayed on yeah. the ride. <laughs> there you go. Yeah, I guess that's true. Not a bad idea. No, and they have a water park. It's awesome. A water park made of Legos. (laughs) (laughs) Well, they're all like Lego themed, you know, like they have like all the pirate ships and everything from when you were a kid and you get to ride Oh, that's cool. Yeah. The Black Seas Barracuda. Yeah. I only know that because I'm engaged to it. Yeah. Yeah. I only ever had like the big Legos that were you know, like Duplo. made for little kids, I guess. Not like the tiny <laughs> build, what CJ does. I never had those. I just had the big Legos. Yeah. Yeah, I had a little brother. So. Ew. And an engineer father. So I was not escaping small Legos as a child. I have a feeling Lisa has to listen to enough Lego talk 
as I know. Is. Sorry. Sorry. Oh no, no, never. I never hear it. <laughs> um, I did the other day. I was thinking because I I I do get a blog from this guy who writes a blog, or I get an email uh, for this guy who writes a blog about Disney. And so he's providing updates all the time about like when they're going to open and like all this stuff. And I did see last week that they are like putting into place like, okay, you know, here's, you got to have face masks here. You've got to, you know, doing all the like, okay, how can we get this to be safe? And then I started thinking about going to Disney World with everyone wearing masks so you can't see if anyone's smiling and it just freaked me the fuck out oh man like going down a ride and just being like ah! <laughs> it's just like just your eyes are bulging and that's all you can see it's like are you in pain or are you having fun it's I don't true know. though like uh caitlin's mom made me and john masks and mailed them to us and I was like, oh, let's take a picture and send it to her mom. And I, I like put, hold, held up the phone and I was like, oh, you can't tell that we're smiling. Like just raise your eyebrows like real fucking high and try to look excited because there's no more mouths. We're in a world without mouths. <laughs> anyway, I do want to go to Disney World when everyone has masks on and it's very apocalyptic. I, I'm sure Disney will, like, go all fucking out on merch for that shit. Like, oh, the Mickey ears connected to, like, a fucking face thing. Or maybe yes. we'll go the Devo way. Have you seen Devo released, you know, their little red hats? Uh-huh. Mm-hmm. They released some with face masks, like, just plastic kind of welding-looking masks in front of them. So you can just buy the Devo full-on face mask thing and I imagine Disney will do something like that I'm in I'm in I'll buy all of it tight give me that goofy mouth you give know, me that yeah Disney needs more money yeah I mean I look I've watched their stock market now that I've fucked around and bought two stocks Ooh, is it going down it did Oh. And it's not really recovering just yet. Well, good thing you bought it like right after Disney Plus and right before the pandemic. So it was at its most yeah. profitable. Exactly. Great timing. Okay. I did buy it right in the pandemic. So I did get it at the low rate. She it's dumb. Rate but she ain't that dumb. Well, welcome to Weird Brunch. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Via Zoom again, because we'll be in this pandemic indefinitely um i'm whitney lamond i'm lisa friedrich no no fucking zoom shut it down we're done thanks for listening yeah bye wait okay no karina say your name i'm karina magyar (laughs) her name's karina magyar now you can shut it down yeah and (laughs) goodbye bye oh but i don't want to say bye i have an itch though well, if y'all want to start, I am excited about my story. Yay. Um, so I 
have been consuming a lot of different types of media as most people are now because there is nothing else to do. And there's a new documentary out called Spaceship Earth, and it's about Biosphere 2, which is the actual, like, you know, biodome experiment that happened in the early 90s. And I remember Biodome, the movie, with Polly Shore coming out as a kid. I do not Hell remember. Yeah. yeah that movie like, fucking I, ruled. Stephen yeah. Baldwin, get me some. So. <laughs> well, yeah, when the Alamo screened this documentary, they had Polly Shore, like, do a Q&A. Did they really? Yeah. Did they? I wonder if they, like, I bet they couldn't film at the actual biosphere for that movie. But anyways, um, Biodome, the idea of it was actually a thing that really did happen. And it's a pretty great fucking story. So let's do it. It all started off in the 70s with the idea from this crazy, he sounds like a very smart dude, but also like, I mean, he was thriving in the 70s, like counterculture shit. Like he's doing all the hippie stuff, looking into like, you know, what are they, eco communities where you, you know, live off the land and that cults. type of thing. Yeah, cults, but for real though. <laughs> that type of thing. He, this guy, his name is John P. Allen. He was legit smart though. He earned a metallurgical mining engineering degree with honors from the Colorado School of Mines, which sounds fake as fuck. <laughs> oh my God, no. The school it's of not Mines. at all. Yeah. Really? It's like the MIT of the West. It's hard oh, to get into. It's a really I've good school. Never yeah. even heard of it. I am so sorry, everybody. No, my uh, my first wife's brother went to School of Mines because it was the only college in America that did not require an entrance essay. It's such, <laughs> <I a> love pure, <laughs> it's such a pure engineering school. They're like, just show us your scores, bro. I love that. Yeah. Um, he also got his master's degree in with a distinction in business administration from Harvard Business School. Like... This guy's fucking smart. He's on his travels. He's meeting all these fucking hippies. He's in San Francisco in the 70s. And he meets a few people and he's like, guess what? Let's found a place called Synergia Ranch. And in 1969, he becomes the general manager of Synergia Ranch, which is out in Santa Fe, New Mexico. It <laughs> housed it his... Yeah. It was also the home of his, so he had this idea also, which is where the hippie shit comes in, of he founded the Theater of All Possibilities, also known as TAP, T-A-P. It was like combining agriculture, ecological, cultural projects with theater. And <laughs> from what I saw in the documentary, it looked fucking terrible it's like experimental theater and they're like making jokes about building things like synergia and it's very improv-y kind of but like <laughs> you know planned improv if that's even possible they're like yeah let's do that just scream called sketch prov yeah yeah fucking <coughs> terrible anyways 
Synergia ends up actually being kind of cool. It's the seventies. People are going out there and visiting and like whatever. And along comes this guy named Ed Bass and the Bass family is a bunch of billionaires. Ed Bass is a businessman, financier, philanthropist, and environmentalist from Fort Worth. His brother, Robert Bass, is the real big badass guy. Um, he's the chairman of Aeron Corporation, A-E-R-I-O-N, Aeron. Anyways, his net worth is $5 billion as of 2018. So these people are rich. Ed Bass goes and visits Synergia a few times and he's talking to John P. Allen and John P. Allen is like, I have this fucking great idea. I want to make like a biosphere and inside this biosphere, we're going to have like a mini world. It's going to have a rainforest. We're going to have a desert. We're going to have mangroves. We're going to have a coral reef. <laughs> all inside this like set of seven-ish structures and we're gonna I want to like test this shit out find out what we can find out and then maybe in the future like way future we can have this shit on the moon or this is how we can colonize Mars so Ed Bass is like bitch that's a great idea I'm in and in 1987 a bunch of people from Synergia and John P. Allen with the help of Ed Bass's money start constructing Biosphere 2. So it's named Biosphere 2 because Biosphere 1 is the earth y'all. Oh. Get it? So I hate this. <laughs> Biosphere 2 is made of steel tubing and high-performance glass and steel frames. It looks legit. Like, if you're watching the documentary, you see the, the hippies, like, building this shit. But they're all educated hippies, and they are, they're legitimately building an extremely well-constructed biosphere. Um, the leak rate of the air inside it was less than 10% which is crazy. And people are like, wow, the best thing that you've done so far is just being able to seal this fucker. So there's that. It's well-made. It's glass. That, like the heat or the heat and the sun can penetrate this structure. So I feel like that's one thing, like if you're trying to colonize this future stuff on Mars, like you wouldn't have that same type of sun or weather, but um, I guess they couldn't really block it all out since they're trying to grow plants and stuff in there. So this beautiful thing is created and they're ready to do their first mission. And there's eight people in the first mission. Everybody's fucking psyched about this. It's 1991, people are like, yeah, this is like the biggest deal since the moon landing. Other people are calling it new age drivel, but you know, <laughs> whatever. So moon landing. Yeah, well, that's true. People are 
saying that not everybody might be that qualified to be here, but it's not 100% right. So the crew, September 26, 1991, it's medical doctor and researcher Ray Walford, who was a professor of pathology at UCLA School of Medicine, and he also had this idea that he believed till he was dead that um, calorie restriction would extend your life. So he was really into extreme dieting. That's member number one. There's eight of them. Member number two, Jane Pointer. She's an American aerospace executive, author, speaker. She's super fucking smart. Number three, Tabor McCallum. McCallum, sorry. Tabor? Tabor, T-A-B-E-R, yes. No. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> one of them, is he the one, one of the guys is nicknamed Laser. And I'm pretty sure it was Tabor. But, uh. Tabor, you don't need a nickname. That's greedy. Yeah. He's so mad about that. currently the Commercial Space Flight Federation co-founder, CTO of Worldview Enterprises. He's super smart. Mark Nelson was an American ecologist from Santa Fe. Sally Silverstone, Abigail Ailing, Mark Van Fillo, and Linda Lee. Is that an equal number of men and women? Yeah. Four I dudes, four to. chicks. Who the I fuck know what they're up to. <laughs> so their first mission is supposed to be two years from September 26, 1991 to September 26, 1993. They put on, like, they look like actual kind of almost spacesuits, of course, without the helmet, but they're all, like, ready to go. Everyone in 1991 is, like, really into this also. They have this dance party before going into their system, and Woody Harrelson is there, and, like, people are fucking partying so excited about this biosphere. So they go in and it's funny in the, in the dock, they can't get the door to fucking close. Everyone goes in and then the woman shuts it from the outside and she's like trying to like clink, clink down the, whatever that thing is, the latch and it just won't fucking go. But then they got it, whatever. All right. So let's go into the biosphere. The idea is that They'll produce all of their own food, get rid of their own waste. They'll have this type of foggy rain that'll come in. Everything's eventually, hopefully, naturally created in this little ecosystem. So it's they, like a rainforest cafe. Kind of, yeah. Except, <laughs> you know, like the grocery store. It's li- Yeah, it's like being at the grocery store when they miss the little vegetables. Mm-hmm. It's the Aww. same thing. That's adorable. Um, <laughs> The agricultural system is going to produce 83% of their total diet that will include bananas, papayas, sweet potatoes, beets, peanuts, a couple types of beans, and wheat. They couldn't use any type of chemical, like, you know, non-toxic chemicals or toxic chemicals because it would completely damage their tiny little ecosystem, like, entirely. It sounded like a lot of fiber that you just rattled off. Yeah. Yeah. Like well, a nice diet. 
easy stuff to grow, really. No so cow? No animals? There are animals. Okay. They have four African pygmy goats and a billy goat, 35 hens, three roosters, two sows, one boar of dwarf pigs, because real pigs would be way too huge. And they have a bunch of tilapia in uh, their like rice paddy area. Um, what if they made teeny tiny little bacons? It bacon probably bits. wouldn't be. That's another way. 90s thing. That's where bacon bits came from. That's it. They were created <laughs> yeah. in the biosphere. Within like the first year, everybody inside the biosphere loses 16% of their body weight. Because nice. Yeah, everyone's like, because they're all, um, well, they're working constantly. So like that was a big part of it is obviously they're having to maintain and farm and do all this stuff and keep up the biosphere while also supposed to be doing a whole bunch of scientific research on how everything is going down. And that's kind of when stuff first starts to get a little uh, cool. <laughs> yeah, cool. Too cool. Too cool between the different types of people that are in there. So Roy, the doctor, he's a real type of guy, but he was like, <laughs> I don't want to, I shouldn't have to be helping this much with like cutting back, like species that are growing too much and like repurposing shit i need to be doing like my medical experiments and i'm out here every goddamn morning helping y'all pick up a bunch of poop and put it back in to fertilize these bean sprouts like he's being a dick he says i want to be a farmer yeah he doesn't always one person on the commune who's like wait i have to be a farmer now yeah and he's the oldest one for Mm. sure also on top of people kind of starting to get at each other. Carbon dioxide levels are rising and oxygen levels are starting to go down. Turns out we need oxygen to live. And uh, like having lowered oxygen levels can make people, one, like lethargic, not feel great, it's hard to do things, but also like, it just makes you pissed. So that's what's wrong with me. Yeah. You're not getting enough oxygen. And (laughs) I think that's why like when people do get pure oxygen, it's supposed to feel like you're kind of getting high because at sea level, our oxygen in the air is about 21%. Their oxygen levels are dropping, not like super fast like they're gonna die in a couple hours but they're steadily dropping off and it's hovering around like 14 percent oxygen inside the biosphere which Colorado school of mines guy was the last one to notice you know (laughs) that's just just how we live up in Colorado well John P. (laughs) Allen isn't even in the dome he's like outside monitoring um, <laughs> we got the good gig. Yeah, but uh, reality show all the time. So <laughs> that yeah. that type of oxygen level is kind of like being on 
almost like being at the top of Mount Whitney or Mount Rainier, if you're familiar with those mountains. Or Mount Evans. I don't know where that is, but I believe you. Let Karina have this story. (laughs) I will. I'm excited that there was a connection. Yes. Um, I'm always trying to connect it for you. Obviously, like not everything's working perfectly. Like they need a protein skimmer to scrub like stuff off of their coral reef area. And they're having to use a carbon scrubber, which is helping them breathe. But people who are hearing this stuff on the outside are like, well, fuck, then this thing is just failing. Like, you're obviously not self-sustainable if you're having to do this. And then this girl, this girl, um, it was... I mean, couldn't they just open up a seal? Well, that's the problem is because it's supposed to be sealed and they're supposed to be creating their oh, yeah, own oxygen. Oh, yeah, because of the moon. Well, no, but... Well, yes, kind of. But they're supposed to be creating their own oxygen from the plants that they're growing And, you know, like our ecosystem Mm -hmm. in the world, it's supposed to put out oxygen and then we breathe it in and, but on top of like the CO2 levels going up, like people, the rate that they're breathing is more than what the plants are putting out. (laughs) So they're using a carbon scrubber that's pissing people off. One of the women is like putting whatever scraps they have into a shredder to mulch it and she cuts off the top of her finger and dr roy is like oh shit and he sews it back on and he's like uh well i don't this needs more work done so you probably need to leave and she's like oh okay and so they unseal they send her out she goes and like gets her finger fixed up and when she comes back, like the ne- within the next couple days, she's carrying like a few bags of shit. And people are like, oh, that's interesting. There were like rumors of like what she had brought back. And people were like, they were like, no, it was just plastic bags. We just needed some plastic bags. Yes, it's new stuff that we're introducing. And they were like, no, bitch, it's, it's different types of equipment. Like they, they did that. The plants on the ground aren't growing as well because the trees that have grown aren't strong enough. So trees get stronger because they're blown in the wind. Like they have to build up a resistance to stay vertical. But because they're in a dome and there is no wind or anything fucking with the trees, they're all just kind of (laughs) like... They're so, trees. Yeah, they're shitty trees. <laughs> and the trees aren't going growing like well enough to kind of shade over the plants underneath them and get those plants growing. So now there's like aggressive kind of species that are taking over. There was a type of ant that accidentally got sealed in. Like I guess it was just hanging out on the ground where they built it and the bees and like the they put they brought in bees and ladybugs and um hummingbirds to pollinate but all those motherfuckers died because they 
it just, there's not enough oxygen and pollination isn't fucking happening. And these ants are like, what's up? This is our jam. And so there's this invasive ant species that's everywhere. And what else is really great at surviving in harsh, harsh places? Fucking cockroaches. Yes. Explosion of cockroach population inside the dome. There's (laughs) bugs everywhere. The only thing they can grow are like beets and shit in the ground. And so everybody's eating the same thing all the time. They're pissed. They start like digging into their seed things and like eating stuff that hasn't even been planted because everybody's starving to death. And Dr. Roy is like, no, it's a low calorie diet. It's great for you. And everyone can't breathe. (laughs) So they're so (laughs) fucking pissed. And they finally... The people on that outside, the scientists that are monitoring it from the outside are like, okay, we're going to pump oxygen in there because y'all need to breathe and you need a break. And so they do. And the people inside, one of the guys is like, oh my God, it was like heaven released on earth. And they're just like dancing around because they have all this energy back because they can fucking breathe. They also start getting like kind, not food deliveries, you know, cause you think of pizza, but they start bringing in certain types of food and giving it to the people inside the dome because it's just not working quite like they thought. Part of the problem is that they're making the desert too wet, if you know what I mean. Um, <laughs> I do. <laughs> yeah. yeah. So the greenhouse ants, the cockroaches, Everything's taking over. The morning glories have con- have entirely overgrown their rainforest. They also experienced a lack of sunlight. Like, if for some reason in the desert it wasn't as sunny as they thought it was going to be, like 50% less sunny than what they were anticipating. When they finally come out in September of 1993, Ed Bass is like, you know what, this didn't quite work out and we hemorrhaged like $150 million <laughs> trying to make this thing work. We that do want to- like nothing. That's like a Tesla sneeze now. Right? That's, but that's he's like, we do want to, I think we do want to try it again, but I'm going to bring in this new guy, Steve Bannon. What? AKA like fucking Steve Bannon- Trump, what? That advisor, guy? Right? Yeah, that guy. No, but it's the same name. It's it's him. What? It's fucking him in the early '90s, and he was like a banking advisor at the time, I think, or an acquisitions advisor. Right. Um, he comes in and he's like, "All right, team number one, fuck y'all, you're fired. We gotta start this all over again," and they do. And they send in a second mission that gets canned in like five months. But within the first month, two of the original people from Biosphere 2's, you know, original cast, if you will, break (laughs) in to the second mission because they're like, I don't know if y'all told, they told y'all this, but 
we almost died because there wasn't enough oxygen in here. So we're breaking a bunch of windows and they let in as much oxygen as they could. A lot of people like resign from the second mission and they just decide to scrap it after five months, which would be such a bummer for the second mission, I would imagine, because everyone who yeah. was in it was genuinely interested in being there. After two years, Steve Bannon left Biosphere. In 1996, he's getting a civil lawsuit filed against him, and he testifies uh, that Abigail Alling was a self-centered, deluded young woman and a bimbo, which sounds just like someone who would be advising Trump. Do we think that this, like, working with these libs is what made him, like, just so adverse and just, I'll jump into alt-right? It could be. I mean, if you look him up in the early 90s, he doesn't look as much like a melting kind of disgusting human. I guess that comes with age, but... Pictures of him are just so horrifying now. Yeah. You know, he had he had his whole life ahead of him, I guess. I or, just can't believe he joined it. Why? Oh, was everybody involved white? Mm-hmm. Okay, well, <laughs> white? Yes. Everybody involved was white. So they were trying to figure out how to build a planet that only had white people on it. Mm-hmm. Now I get why also, he was- yeah, to be fair, this is some white people shit. Like, oh, for sure. For sure. Yeah. Mm-hmm. That's why I took that stab at it. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Mm-hmm. It is. I do kind of get where a lot of the criticism was that they felt like the people who were accomplishing the first mission weren't really all that qualified. I think a couple of them were, and then there was one that was like, here's the hot girl, and like, a few of them were dating and yeah, you, I, need a hot girl. you you gotta have the hot girl. I don't know. I feel like it's kind of sad because it was an experiment and people just shit all over it because it didn't work out. And it's like, well, yeah, we went into this trying to prepare for everything that could possibly happen, but obviously we weren't like, there are certain things you couldn't predict and there's a lot of research that happened that just nobody has. Like, it never got released. So after the Biosphere second mission is ended, Ed Bass is like, what's up, Columbia? I'm just gonna let you take over, like, universe, Columbia University. And so they're doing research in it for a while, but not like manned missions like locking people in and then it gets sold in 2005 the land and the the biosphere and everyone's like oh shit they're gonna like tear down the biosphere and build something like hotels shopping mall yeah basically (laughs) we gotta stop um, the evil developers and they hold a bake sale right yeah very damn that's it they and a car wash and a car Um, wash Fucking hate the 90s. Yep. In 2007, the University of Arizona took over Biosphere 2, and they're still using it today. There's a few, there's a few bigger, like, research things going on there now. 
like I said, Biodome came out in 1996 and was kind of a spoof of the biosphere. And then um, Spaceship Earth is now available as a documentary. I can't remember where I watched it. And then um, T.C. Boyle, who is an author, um, who he's written, I want to say he wrote about like the 70s and like free love movement, also wrote a book called The Terranauts. Get it? Like terraform. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Anyways, so yeah, that's my quick rundown of biosphere 2 there's a lot more involved and like i highly recommend watching that documentary and then going to the wikipedia and reading all about that and reading about john allen because he was a nutcase but also like smart anyways it's it's a wild ride man and you know we're all kind of stuck in our own little biodomes right now so oh yeah that's a good point yeah, my oxygen levels are definitely going down. Low, man. Ugh. Makes me want to open a window. Get All right. Well, speaking of small enclosed places where people shouldn't be, we're going to take a long way to get there, though. Tight. Literally. Um, <laughs> so, first of all, let's talk about what you do as a human species when you need to do money things, like give people money and borrow money and take money. Um, but most people can't read or write, and there's not enough coins going around. Trade. Trade? Trade your goods, man. Yeah, but like you trade your goods. Yeah, now like, how do you keep track of that? You can't read, you can't write, you don't have any coins. You're like, what if I need to prove that we did this trade? Mm-hmm. So what people did was they picked up a stick, and they made notches in the stick, and then they split the stick in half so that one person had one half and the other person had another half. And when you matched them together, you could see, hey, this was that trade. This is the stick that proves that trade happened. And this okay. was called a tally stick. And it was, despite nobody knowing about it anymore, the main way of keeping track of financial transition, transactions from about negative 1,000 until the 1800s. This was like, what? yeah, this is like the way money works. Like because America money, was built with this? No, America never got into this. England got way into this. Well, that's why we left. Tally, yeah. it sounds very British. Although in the early colonial era, era people did use tally sticks. But um, it was like mainly a medieval thing is when it took off. Uh, because it was how they collected taxes. So... You gave us, you know, for taxes, you weren't paying money for taxes. You were paying your actual, like, hey, I'm a poor peasant. I just harvested a bunch of wheat. Here's my six bushels of wheat for the government. Oh, here's your tally stick that proves you gave us your six bushels of wheat. So if the sheriff Nottingham comes by again, you can show your receipt, basically. And it's done just with your tally whacker, Adam. You can wave your tally whacker, which is a related term. So, like, (laughs) these are just sticks people just have sticks and not just like people like peasants like oh i've got my half of a stick that shows i gave my taxes but the freaking english government has the other half of all these sticks so how many sticks like do you have a stick room yes so you end up with a stick room and this stick room the tally stick room was at uh you know the houses of parliament westminster 
Paul or whatever. Um, so before we get to the stick room where all these sticks built up for centuries and centuries and centuries, let's talk about how they <laughs> marked the sticks. So what you did is you got your stick, right? And you scooped out a mark and the width of the scoop equaled how much money was on it. No, I hate yep. it. So I like all of if you wanted to say a thousand pounds, you would cut something the thickness of a palm of your hand. A hundred pounds was the width of your thumb. 20 pounds was the width of your little finger. And then a single pound was the width of a swollen barley corn, which oh. apparently just everybody could eyeball back then. <laughs> a shilling was something kind of narrower than that. And a penny was just a little notch with no width to it at all. And this so was the- I can, I can go back and put some palm marks in this stick. Yeah, but then it won't match the other half. When they put the two halves together, they say, "Hey, you owe me a, a thousand pounds. Look at this big old palm mark. When you match it back to the other half of the stick, there's no matching mark." Oh. Because they split it right down the middle of the marks, so that when you put them together, you can see that they match up. How are you going to split a barley mark? Well, the stick, you split, split the, the stick. stick down the middle. Yeah, so like if you make the mark this way, you split the stick this way, so each person has a half of the mark. Mm-hmm. And, and this is, but, yeah. And because okay. sticks were always splitting like crazy, they always like only matched up with their partner. It was actually pretty smart. Um, you know, there's this ways is the it. first Excel sheet. Yeah, basically. And it really worked if you lend, loaned somebody money and you came back and you'd be like, oh, okay, we got to pay this money. And so what would happen is you'd match the sticks up and you're like, well, you paid me back this much of it. So you'd cut off that much and burn it. And now that's all that's left is what you still owe, right? So really it worked out pretty well. And that's why they kept doing it. I mean, if I need, I need a whiteboard. So in 1697, the Royal Bank actually issued a million dollars worth of stock in exchange for $800,000 worth of tally sticks. So like that's how, pounds I mean, of course, um, that's how like valuable these were. This was really how money worked. Um, They were like the, I don't know, debit cards of the day. Everybody had a bunch of sticks. Um, So they just acquired somebody else's debts? And yeah, you could just okay. grab the sticks and now you own right. those debts. And as long as you know where the other half of the stick is, you can go like match it up with somebody's stick and say, look, give me my money. Right? Yeah. Oh, I get it. Yeah. <laughs> I had to look it up, but I get it now. <laughs> so finally, uh, around the 1700s, around the time, like, and this is why they never took off in America, around that time of, of the colonies, uh, paper got to be a lot easier to use. And also literacy started going up. So people could actually do money on paper the way we're used to it now. And so tally sticks were kind of falling out of favor. They weren't used as much. And in the late 1700s, England passed a law saying, okay, no more tally sticks, cut it out. It's all paper from now on. But they had to like say, you know, but any existing tally sticks are still good until you know, all those transactions are complete. And so they sat around and waited for like a century until 1826 when the last active tally stick was used. 
And they were like, good, all the tally sticks are done. We can just go back to regular money. Now they have a problem though, because the Houses of Parliament have a room fucking chock full of 600 years worth of tally sticks. And Jesus. by this point, that's just records, right? Like you they're said, just they're records. not active. So it's no. like, how do we? These are just records. Although there's a lot of like historians are really like, wow, think about what's on those records. Like the ransom of kings are on those tally sticks. Right. And actual war dividends and stuff like major transactions that England was conducting with other nations are on these tally sticks, but they're just sticks. <laughs> and so in 1834, the like steward of the houses of parliament was like, eh, let's get rid of these. Um, and there was a lot of suggestions of what they should do. Should we wait, what year? 1834. They're like, should we um, give them out to members of parliament to like use in, at home in their stoves, you know, or like what? And he's like, you know what? No, just burn them. Just burn them in the ovens in the basement. So the houses of parliament, by the way, are not the ones we know now. These houses of parliament were built by Clooney the Elder in eight, 806 and added on to by William the Conqueror. And they'd been around and used actively as the throne of the King of England since 1180 or something like that. And continued to be the throne up through Henry VIII when he said, screw you guys, I'm going to, to um, where they are now. Whatever that hall is. When, what is that hall? Windsor. Hell? Is it hell? Yeah. <laughs> but yeah, it was the throne of England and the crown jewels were there. Uh, and the actual official yard and pound were kept there, just the way, same way that Paris kept the, the official meter and um, liter and all of that. Wait, so like, yard, wait, yard like the cops? No, like, the, like the like the measurement, like three feet. Like this is the original, this we're going to use the yard as our yep. system for measurement. And if so you want to another... see if your yard is, a, is the right size, come measure it against this. This is the yard. The yard. It was made so out of So just stone. another fucking stick? Basically, but it was sturdy. And then uh, the official pound, a thing that weighed exactly one pound was there. And if like, you want to see if your pound weighs a pound, go weigh it against the official pound. It was just a pound of something. Sounds like a lot of travel. Yeah, well, these things were important, I guess. <laughs> I guess. Um, so being a, a, a thousand year old building almost, um, it had been added on to a lot and they'd try to fix it up from time to time by like sticking more rooms onto it and like fixing the walls. And they kept trying to bring modern, like building to it without tearing it down because it's history. And it turned into just this maze of rooms and like, mysterious closets and rickety staircases. There were zero bathrooms in it, absolutely no plumbing. And this is where parliament met. And <laughs> we're starting to complain a fuck ton in the early 1800s, because at this point people were used to toilets and sinks to wash their hands in, and they didn't get them at work. You know what I mean? Also, it was quite small because Parliament used to be, you know, 50 rich guys. And now it was like 800 MPs, like trying to cram themselves into a tiny room, 
with poor ventilation and almost no light and absolutely no modern conveniences to debate everything, which probably explains why they were so cranky the whole time. So people are pretty like, we have to fix this parliament building. It sucks. And that's why they hired or they started the office of this guy to like modernize parliament. And one of his things was, well, we've got this giant vault full of 600 years with a sticks. If we clear that out, maybe we can use it for something else. So this is what kind of precipitated the stick burning. So they throw the sticks into the ovens and uh, these ovens are usually used for coal to heat the buildings of parliament. And as we all know, coal burns really, really hot, which is good, um, but doesn't create a lot of flame, which is also good. Um, wood, kind of the opposite. Lots of flame, not a lot of heat. And lots of flame makes lots of smoke. Um, it was pouring flames from 600 years of just tons and tons of wood into these old dust chimneys. Dry. And mold, right? Had been chiseled on the inside to create footholds for the chimney sweeps, who were, yes, seven-year-old boys who would go in and clean out the chimneys so that in order to keep from dying, they had made little footholds in them, but that had made the chimneys weak uh, and full of holes. So just all this smoke is pouring into it. This is on uh, October 16th. They gave the job to two Irish guys, Joshua Cross and Patrick Furlong. And the only instructions were burn all these sticks. And they just decided to do it as fast as they could. <laughs> Shoved them all in there all at once. Oh. Um, so pretty quickly, the, the chimneys were overwhelmed. And this old rat warren of nothing but wood had a huge fire burning at the center of it. What's a rat warren? Like, you know, like it, it was like like a worm tunnel or like... Oh, you know like there's cheese at the end of it. Yeah, yeah, like a maze. So these two gentlemen tourists from Spain were there that afternoon and they came to see the tapestries that recorded the uh, defeat of the Spanish Armada. They're like, oh, let's go see those tapestries that recorded how our Navy got kicked, its ass kicked by the English. And they go into that small room where they're keeping the Armada tapestries. And they were like, man, it's hard to see these tapestries. Man, yeah, the lighting in this room is terrible. Also, all this smoke. And like black smoke is really hard to see through. And like, hey, have you noticed the floor is hot? Yeah, the floors are really heated like a little too much. It's kind of hot in here, let's go. And they leave. And they're like, dude, thanks for letting us see the Armada tapestries on the day off when the building was closed. But at the same time, like, you can't see anything in this stupid old building. And also your floors are hot. And they're like, are they now? Um, Alarming. Alarming. Yeah. Yes. I'm recording a podcast, Goof. Yeah. I'll see you in a little bit. You need your, your, yeah, your pants are falling down. Just hold them up when you walk. I can't stop looking at pictures of tally sticks. Can you close the door, please? Thank you, boo. All right. We almost got a little butt on screen. Okay. Uh, so anyway, that's at four o'clock. Five o'clock, uh, rooms started catching on fire, and the first flames were seen under the door for the House of Lords, which was the center of Parliament. 
the wife of one of the doorkeepers came in and was like, um, that's on fire. Uh, so she calls all the staff. They don't like call everybody. They just call the staff and the staff just panics and they run into the house of Lord and try to put the fire out with like jugs of water and like blankets and stuff. But that's not going to work because the basement, the whole basement is an entire inferno at this point. It's just, we're seeing like just the licks of the flames from up in the basement. So that's not working. And then they go out to like call for help. When they do that at 6.30, there's a, a flashover and a giant ball of flame bursts forward in the House of Lords and it motherfucking explodes. <gasps> Boom, all right, one of the biggest explosions in the history of London that wasn't caused by a bomb. The top of the House of Lords blows off. The royal family 20, uh, 20 miles away from their castle can see it. Everybody in London can see it. Crowds start coming. Everybody thinks it's a Guy Fox thing because it's 1834 and in the 1830s, France had a revolution. Belgium had a revolution. Poland had a revolution. Spain was about to have a revolution. It was kind of like the Arab Spring for Europe. All of these monarchies were getting overthrown and all of the people in London looked over and saw the House of Lords blew up and they were like, fuck, yes. And they like <laughs> ran towards it and started cheering it on. Um, they were like, this is awesome, go! And they were like booing fire engines that were showing up. Um, all the people there thought, they missed, they believed, that because the bills were burning up, that meant the laws were no longer valid. So like the, the fire was yeah. erasing the authority of the state. There go the acts. Um, so yeah, everybody was in a great mood. Uh, the firefighters, by the way, even though in 1666, famously London completely burned down, they still hadn't gotten around to organizing a fire department. <laughs> so. In 1834, they had the London Fire Engine Establishment, which was an organization of firefighters run by the insurance companies. So the insurance companies would come <laughs> and put the fires out, you know, if you were insured, which the parliament building was not. It was uninsured. <laughs> the royal government never went and took out insurance on it. But because for king and country, the London Fire Engine Establishment came and tried to help anyway. Uh, it was a pretty lost cause. That thing was basically built to burn down to the ground. Um, in it went all of the history of Parliament, all of the, the official yard, the official pound, all of that stuff gone. The only thing they saved was Westminster Abbey, or the Westminster Hall that's still there today, and the parliamentary mace, which is that big stick that the king gets to hold. Every, and the crown jewels were in a tower, so they were safe. Everything else just completely burned down. That was 1834. It was the most recorded burning in history. Like everybody painted it. Everybody wrote about it. Everybody, it was the biggest news of uh, the century in England, basically. And they're like, well, I guess we got to build a new parliament. And so they hold a little contest and uh, a lot of designs are submitted. But the one that wins is the one that we see now. And by 1843, uh, they have built the new row of parliament that is the, you know, kind of iconic one. And in 1858, they finished putting up the clock tower with Big Ben in it. Um, and so all of that that we think of when we think of like the British parliament 
was built because they burnt all their tally sticks. And by um, they, you mean two Irishmen. Two Irish guys burnt. Maybe they did it on purpose. Yeah, maybe. I don't know. But yeah, that's just, uh, it's all because we kept track of our money on sticks. <laughs> I love it. I mean, I, I get, yeah, I get it. You know, a palm's worth is a lot of money. <laughs> like this much money. You fit out. Give me, get, is this this much money? <laughs> One cup breaths of money. One cup breast of money. That was two. Yeah. Yeah. That's. Yeah. <laughs> I got two titties worth of money. <laughs> yeah. You wouldn't want that much money. It's so did the Armada flags burn down? What's that? I'm sure. The Armada flags. All the, the tapestries. tapestries. Yeah. All yeah. Gone. Gotta. Man, yeah. that could have. A lot of history went up. Uh, yeah, I'm sure just like tons. Tons of history went up in flames. And then according to some of the journalists there, a lot of the history was just sort of looted. Because like all the parliament members came running. And so there was a lot of lords and ladies running around. And they were sort of seen kind of dashing in and dashing out with some very special things they'd had their eyes on that sort of disappeared. And we're considered gone in the blaze, but are probably sitting on some rich lord's mantelpiece now. Oh, I'm sure. Or like the next generation is like, <laughs> I don't know, this was grandma's. It looks gross. Let's just throw it away. And it's like. Yep. And that's how the, it ends up on uh, Antiques Roadshow in Madison. Yeah. Yeah. The year 608. <laughs> like wild. Oh, I love the, I love all the old depictions of stuff burning. Yeah. <laughs> It's fucking crazy. I would put money or at least three palms worth on titty cups worth of money. <laughs> three. Uh, that some parliament folks were like, hey, I want a fucking bathroom. Put all the sticks in there. Who put gives a, a shit? Let's this. burn this motherfucker down. Mm -hmm. I have to pee. They did get much nicer digs out of it. That's true. I yeah. wonder if they killed the two Irish guys. Like, that seems like something they'd be like, sorry, we have to cut your heads off. No, they were just doing what they were told. Um, and uh, that's the other thing about this. Only nine people had to even go to the hospital. Nobody died. It was just it, since it happened on a weekend or whatever. And So win-win. Everyone gets entertained. Nobody has bills anymore. Yeah. Like, Really a happy event. They get a new building. Everyone gets to finally take a shit at work. Wow. <laughs> Instead of burying a hole. Yeah. <laughs> I gotta go use the outhouse. <laughs> um, that was Australian. That was Australian. I'm was. sorry. <laughs> no, Australia, they call it a dunny. A dunny. A dunny oh. house, yeah. Ooh. Do they call all bathrooms that? Yeah. So they were I, like... I heard they call them Lisa's. That's fucked up. That's rude. <laughs> That's in New Zealand. What? Is that true? No. <laughs> oh. Y'all. It's okay. 
I'm married to a John and John's it's a name for a lot of things that aren't that great. That's true. Uh, <laughs> uh, how many, have y'all been wearing some yoga pants up in this core? I'm wearing junior sized Sophie shorts. I feel like that's a brag. The kind, no, they're like extra, extra, extra large. And so they come down like really long. It's a weird shape. I've got like a nautical themes pajamas on. Oh. Yeah. Captain pants. Captain Are you um, wearing yoga pants then? Yeah, pretty much all day every day. Right now I'm wearing some camo ones. Because <laughs> I'm going hunting. The person behind, um, more or less behind yoga pants is also behind a lot of things, including uh, bulletproof vests. And she is named Stephanie Louise Qualick. That's a name. Um, yeah, she was, uh, she was born in 1929 outside of Pittsburgh in New Kensington, Pennsylvania. She was a first-generation American to, you guessed it, Polish immigrants um, with that fucking name. Um, her mother, Nellie, was a seamstress, so Stephanie spent a lot of her childhood dreaming of being a fashion designer because she was around it so much, and she would draw, and she would come up with all these ideas, very creative. And her dad uh, was a naturalist, um, kind of by hobby, but he took it pretty seriously. Um, so she spent a lot of her first 10 years in nature with him, um, collecting and pressing natural arts. So very, again, creative. Um, and he awesome. died. Yes. That's it sounds like, like a beautiful childhood. childhood. Yeah. Sounds amazing. Um, her father did pass when she was 10 years old, which is sad. Um, and then in 1946, she earned a Bachelor's of Science in Chemistry from uh, the chick part of Carnegie Mellon, uh, Margaret Morrison Carnegie College. Um, I'm assuming that's the no boys allowed school because they didn't a lot of colleges or universities have kind of a twofold system where here the women go here and the men go here. I feel like my mom told me she was part of the first class of Aggies where women were allowed on the same campus. And that was in the 70s. Yeah, well, so, that's, archaic. That's, that's Aggie land. That's a little bit yeah. behind. Mm -hmm. <laughs> yeah. Uh, <laughs> so she goes to, uh, you know, she gets her degree in chemistry and even she's kind of like, huh? kind of weird that that just happened um she wants to be a doctor and so she's like i'm gonna find a short-term job in chemistry uh to get some money so i can put myself through medical school um so it's 1946 and dim boys are still overseas so good time to be entering the workforce as a woman she applies to dupont uh, and in the interview, she's like, mm, I'm not waiting around for you to like come back to me to be like, here's your next interview. 
Um, I have other people that are like, what's up? And so the interviewer, W. Hale Church, said, he's like, all right, girl, uh, let's just get you into Buffalo. You got the job. So she goes to Buffalo, New York, right on the spot. Uh, so she's got her job. She's, you know, she's ready to go. She's going to put herself through medical school. She's going to do this job for a while. Uh-oh, she really likes what she's doing. Um, so in 1950, she decides to continue her work with DuPont uh, and moves into beautiful Wilmington, Delaware. Ooh, exotic. Mm-hmm. Um, so she actually, uh, she invented the nylon rope trick, uh, which science teachers, my science teachers never did in class, uh, but apparently others did. So I'm bringing it up here. Maybe you guys saw a nylon rope trick. Uh, maybe someone listening did. If you did, please let us know because I am interested and could have Googled it, but did not. Um, in 1964, so 14 years after she's in uh, Wilmington, officially like dedicated to DuPont, there is uh, an anticipation of a national gas crisis. So the work here was like, how do we make vehicles, but kind of the work she was focused on was like, how do we make vehicles to where they're using less gas? So make them less heavy, make them, you know, in her world, it was make them less heavy. So they wanted to find a new material that could replace the steel in tires. Um, and, oh, that's Kevlar. So she invented Kevlar. Um, and, you know, the testing started in 1964 and a couple of people came up with some things and it was just like this murky fluid thing. And so a lot of it got thrown out and then she was like, no, 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 test this again. Um, and they tested it again at a different heat and a different rotation. And they were like, oh shit, this is five times stronger than steel by weight. Like, this is awesome. Um, so she actually so Kevlar is a thing and almost immediately DuPont is like every other team how can we use the shit out of this this is incredible this will change the world which it did um and she didn't have much to do with that um section of it so you know typical they were like everyone else go do this you go make more shit yeah um, the idea. we'll let the boys do something with it yeah yeah. And so uh, Kevlar is used for almost everything. Um, cell phones, computers, uh, tennis rackets, skis, parachute lines, boats, armored cars, bulletproof vests, and yoga pants. Um, <laughs> it's relative to the unprecedented times. Mm. Um <laughs> Her uh, discovery of Kevlar generated several billion dollars of revenue for DuPont, and she didn't see any of that um, because she signed over the Kevlar patent to DuPont. Oh. Did she create it? Well, I wonder how that works, because, like, if you are working for that company, when you create something, don't they automatically kind of own it? They make you sign things about that. Yes. Okay. Because mm -hmm. I think you can. Yeah. Yeah. I, I think 
part of it is definitely like when you sign on, it's like a no compete kind of where it's, it's pretty standard. But I also think that a lot of people probably invented shit in DuPont that they were like, we don't want that. And so they could take it elsewhere or patent it Uh, themselves. If it turns into anything, they pull out your little employer agreement that says anything that's invented while you're an employee on using like company property is the property of DuPont or like whatever company. That's pretty standard. It's like what happened in Silicon Valley. That's the only thing I have to compare it to. <laughs> no, it's exactly like that. Yeah. Yeah. I that that does make sense. Cause I I think it was no, it was Dow. My grandfather worked for Dow. I think I've said this. And he helped invent PVC pipe. And so he got a letter from uh I think it was Eisenhower that was like, oh, yeah. Hey dude, thanks. thanks and it's signed PVC. by him. It's weird. Um, so she didn't make any money, but she has a fuck ton of awards. She received the, uh, in 1980, she received the Chemical Pioneer Award from the American Institute of Chemists, uh, and an award for creative invention from the American Chemical Society. In 1995, for the discovery specifically of Kevlar, she was awarded the DuPont Company's Lavoisier Medal, which is also part of MIT um, for Outstanding Technical Achievement in 1995. She was added to the National Inventors Hall of Fame in 95. She received National Medal of Technology and the IRI Achievement Award in 96. In 97, she received the Perkin Medal from the American Chemical Society. And in 2003, she was inducted into the National Women's Hall of Fame, Get It Beach. So in um, 86, she retired as a research associate for DuPont. Um, and then towards the end of her life, she consulted for DuPont and served on both the uh, National Research Council and the National Academy of Sciences. Um, during her 40 years as a research scientist, she filed and received 28 patents. Wow. Which is huge. Um, she tutored high school students in chemistry and encouraged parents to talk to their daughters about careers in sciences. So very STEM early. Um, she devised and wrote numerous classroom demonstrations and they're still used in schools today. I haven't seen the fucking nylon trick and i really want to see this um the nylon she i don't know that thing that i guess oh whitney what i was talking to john he's bothering me um i googled the nylon trick and it looks like uh just chemicals and you can like extract some string and wrap it around stuff that's all i got i don't know how it works because i didn't get to see the chemistry part of it but from pictures that's what i can gather that sounds cool um she passed at the age of 90 on june 18th 2014 and at the time uh she is the only woman awarded that lavoisier medal from dupont and mit and i just wanted to share her story because i thought it was really sweet and really cool and I've been wearing nothing but yoga pants so <laughs> god bless that's good 
It's nice to hear like something that doesn't end in explosions and death. Yeah. Well, and she, I don't know. I just, I also, I mean, child of a chemical engineer. I don't know. I am not good at chemistry uh, at all. And just my brain doesn't work that way, but uh, it's just, I don't know. It's really cool to see that shit. I wish I minded. Uh, I'll never be in a chemistry anything. Mm-hmm. Also, the fact that she lived to 90, you'd think she would have been exposed to some type of horrible thing. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> now and then that gave her cancer like a million years ago, but I guess she was just like, no, bitch, I'm smart. Yeah, especially like in that time frame of like the 40s to the 80, like, yeah, some shit was invented and it was not good. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Not that that stopped, but that's the story of Stephanie Qualick. I like it. I like, I like her. I like women. <laughs> Scientists. But. Uh. Well, now that we're all stuck at home, maybe we can try the nylon rope trick. Ooh. At home. Ooh, is it household chemicals? Is it like one of those things? It I have a video popped up for it, but it says it's the reaction between hexamethylene diamine and water and sebacoil chloride. Those don't sound like household chemicals. You got any of that laying around? Uh, not unless it's in my TV dinner. I mean, could be, could be. Last night I made an all-American dinner because we're almost out of all of our food. And so I made a bunch of corn dogs and like a hot pocket. (laughs) (laughs) So I probably consumed a good amount of disgusting chemicals. Um, Follow us at Weird Brunch on all the places and visit our website and tell your friends and podcast. And please let me know if you did any cool experiments in science classes. Hell yeah. Give us the patents so we can make money with them. (laughs) 